Okay, some of you might be wondering if I'm still married. I am. Uh, Nancy, who's watching now, she got COVID about three weeks ago, and so we're into that three-week thing. I got tested on Thursday, folks, just to make sure I could be here today, and I'm fine. Good. I think I had it back in February. Um, So anyhow, she's doing great, just really fatigued, and I know that uh, this is nothing new to those many of our congregation, many of our friends and family uh, right now are at home because they have been struck by COVID. So uh, we continue uh, to thank the Lord um, for healing and thank the Lord for health. Have you ever in all your life been thankful to be a healthy person? I never was. I took it for granted. I'll tell you right now, I took it for granted. Now I'm like, wow, health is a big deal. It's a really big deal. So anyhow, that's that. I am still married, so I can still preach. I can still be here. All right, here's the deal. Here's my question. Here's what we're going to look at this morning. Have you noticed (laughs) how you make things worse when you try to fix it? Have you noticed that? Seriously. Um, I learned early on that I am not a handyman. I am not a fixer-upper. I'm probably the only living organism, not just human being, organism in all of Waco that doesn't like that show. I, I don't like Home Depot, I don't like Lowe's, I don't like Ace Hardware, I don't like Landscape Supply, I don't like HGTV, and you know what? They don't like me either. When I walk into Ace, I watch that person with their little double O, you know, seven mic, he's back. You know, I can see him warning everybody in the store, and some of you are wondering, well, you know, Jeff, well, when did you have this personal you know, discovery about yourself. This personal discovery about myself is as clear as my conversion. It's as clear as me becoming a Christian. (laughs) I'll never forget it. We moved into 8224 Mosswood Drive, Waco, Texas, 76712, right from Dallas. And in the garage, I I wanted to put up shelves, like from top to bottom, all over the walls. Uh, But not just any kind of shelves. The no sagging shelves, right? And so how do you do that? How do you have a no sagging shelf? How do you have a shelf that when a tornado hit, the house goes, but the shelves stay? That's what I was after, right? And the answer is bolts. You bolt. You bolt the attachment, the shelf attachments, uh, into the studs that are in the walls. And you bolt thousands of them into the walls. And so it took all day, but I did it. And I didn't have a power drill because I'm not a handyman. I didn't know what a power drill was then. So it was just pure grit and a screwdriver. But I got them all in. And at the end of this thing, I brought my wife out to take a look at my incredible work. I brought her. I'll never forget this. I brought her out, and I was just like. There's only one thing left. I just had to put the shelves on. You know, everything's in place for the shelves. That's easy, right? And little Miss Fixer Upper looks at me, and she's looking at it, and she says, so honey, how are you going to put the shelves up? And that is when I saw what she saw for the first time. I had bolted, bracketed 10,000 bolts all over the walls, backwards. (laughs) I hope you feel my pain. So what did you do, Jeff? Thank you for your concern. What did I do? I do what I always do in those situations. I grab my favorite tool, 
the hammer. <laughs> and the last thing, the last thing I remember is little Miss Fixer Upper saying, no, no, not the hammer. <laughs> Have you noticed how you make things worse when you try to fix it? The holes proudly are there to this day in those walls. Have you noticed how you make things worse when you try to fix it, like the sin you struggle with? Uh, the guilt and shame you feel? Uh, the life change you're so striving to have take place in your life? Have you noticed how you make things worse when you try to fix it, like the distance you feel with God? Like at that kid at school, you just want to like you. Like the lack of intimacy in your marriage. Like the child you're trying to reach. Have you noticed how you make things worse when you try to fix it? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to be in Isaiah 40. We're going to look at one through five today. So, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. And the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. All right, y'all, please be seated. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that this is a moment that is special in terms of you reaching us, in terms of you actually showing up. And so, Lord, we ask you to show up. We ask that we would experience you with this text. We ask this by the power of your Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, y'all, take a look at verses 1 through 5. You've got Israel is in exile, right? Uh, Babylonian exile, to be exact. Uh, the Babylonians were the world's superpower in that day. Uh, they have invaded Israel. They have slaughtered Israel. They have raped Israel. They have ruined Israel. They have defeated Israel. They have enslaved Israel. In Isaiah 1 through 5, Israel is in exile. So what is an exiled life? What does exile feel like? What do you experience when you're in exile? Well, Isaiah says it's life in the wilderness. You see that in verse 3? In other words, it's life in the wasteland. You know, Luke tells us that when the evil one met Jesus, they met where? In the wilderness. Isaiah says life, an exiled life is life in the desert. You see that in verse 3? In other words, a life in a place of nothingness. Uh, this is where things are formless and void. This is sand. Sand has no form. Sand is empty. It's a desert. 
An exiled life is life in the valley. You see that in verse 4? In the Old Testament, God never shows up in valleys and low places. He shows up and meets you on high places. Psalm 24 or Psalm 23 says it this way, that this, this low place is life in the valley of deep darkness, or the more traditionally uh, reading, life in the valley of the shadow of death. Bad things live in low places. Monsters live under your bed. Every kid knows that. What is an exiled life? Well, it's life, according to Isaiah, life amidst massive, immovable mountains. Do you see that in verse 4? In other words, it's living with powers too big for you. It's living with thrones that are too great for you. What is an exiled life? Well, we're told here it's life on uneven ground in verse 4. Do you see that? Well, what's uneven ground? That means every step is a stumble. It's also an exiled life is life in rough places. Do you see that in verse 4? Where every step is not just a stumble, but every step is exhausting. Never forget when uh, my brother, my dad, and I went fishing in Broken Bow, Oklahoma after the flood they had there. And the best spot was 100 yards now of boulders that had been moved down through the valley and just loaded at this turn. It was 100 yards of boulders. And it was the best place to fish, to fly fish. And so getting in there was exhausting. It wasn't exhausting physically. Come on. It was exhausting mentally. Because you had to concentrate on where you put your foot everywhere you were going in this hundred yards just to get to a place to fish. Rough places are so exhausting because you're so self-conscious. What is an exiled life? It's a collapsing life. It's a life that's constantly collapsing, falling to pieces, but there are always more pieces to fall to peace with. So what has the power to do this to us? What has the power to exile you and me? What has the power to collapse you personally and relationally? What is the power to collapse us in all areas of our life, like the way we handle money or the way we handle sex or the way we handle education? What has the power to reduce and collapse a church and neighborhoods and communities and cities and races and cultures and politics? What has the power to exile us? Isaiah 41, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What has the power to exile us? A bigger Babylon. A bigger Babylon. I want you to find uh, her warfare. Her means Israel's warfare. Do you see that in the text? So Israel is at war with an enemy that's bigger than Babylon, according to this text. Do you see that? In other words, Israel's at war with a hostile power that's beyond Babylon. Now, what is the hostile power? What's this bigger Babylon? I want you to find her, Israel's iniquity, 
for all her, Israel's sins. Do you see that? That, the that there, do you see the that that's just that, 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 that? There's like three or four that's in that sentence. Each that is explaining what happened before it. You got that? So each that. So it would go like this. So iniquity, which is an old-fashioned word for condemnation, an old-fashioned word for uh, punishment, an old-fashioned word for guilt, an old-fashioned word for a, a collapsing reality, comprehensively so. It's an old-fashioned word. Uh, so iniquity is explaining warfare. Do you see that in the text? And then look at sin. So sins is explaining iniquity. Got it? Okay, so what do you do when you put them all together? What do you do when you get all the that's together, you get all the grammar together, because God's in the grammar, and what do you get? Sin carries condemnation with it. Sin carries guilt with it. Sin carries a comprehensive collapse with it. In other words, sin carries exile with it. This is why way back in the beginning of all things, God said to the very first human beings, he said, listen, he says, the day you eat of it, sin, you will die exile. This is why when Israel entered the promised land and everything was roses and everything was great and it was like everybody was back in the garden and it looked like everything was being put back together again and everything was fixed. And God said to Israel, he says, listen, if you don't do what my law says, in other words, if you sin, you won't stay in the land. In other words, you'll be exiled. This is why the apostle Paul, he says, listen, the wages, he says, the wages, the payment, the just, holy, righteous reality of sin is death, exile. Uh, this is why Jesus, he would say it when he was on this earth, he'd say it to anyone that would listen, he'd say, listen, y'all keep thinking about condemnation and guilt and a comprehensive collapse as something that's in the future, but I'm telling you, it's here right now. A comprehensive collapse in exile is already present. It's already at work. It's already wrecking everything he was saying. What's, what's, what's a bigger Babylon? Answer, according to Isaiah, sin and the exile it carries with it. So what does this mean, y'all? I mean, seriously. I, I mean, when I was looking at this text, okay, oh, okay, great. You know, another topic here. What does it mean? What does it mean for you and me like real life living right now? What does it mean for us today to have a bigger Babylon at work? To have sin carrying all of us away in exile? What does it look like? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for the way you think right now, and the way you feel right now, and the way you experience things right now, and the way you relate right now? What does it mean for fields of like philosophy and psychology and, and all the behavioral sciences and anthropology and sociology? What does it mean for cultures and race relations? And what does it mean for education? 
What does it mean for cities and neighborhoods? What does it mean for like social media? What does it mean if this is all true, this bigger Babylon that's at work? What does it mean? Here's what it means. The bigger Babylon means that the condemnation you feel, the dread you experience in life, the doom that you're waiting for the other shoe to drop or something worse to happen to you, the fear of rejection that gets into the roots of your being and this real anxiety that you feel throughout your day and this shame that just won't go away and this despair that creeps into our lives and the self-loathing that you find yourself in and this fear of being watched and judged and measured. The condemnation, that's all called condemnation, the condemnation you feel, this is what it means, are you ready, is real. And I'm sorry if I'm the first one to tell you this. Shame on those that haven't told you already. It's real. Guilt is not a bad childhood. Guilt is not bad brain chemistry or bad genetics. Guilt, condemnation, punishment, all those things I just mentioned. It's an umbrella term. It's a suitcase term. It's loaded with things in a suitcase. Guilt is not lack of education. It's not lack of opportunities. It's not lack of money. Guilt is not white supremacy. Guilt is not poverty, and it's not the wrong ism or the wrong ideological belief today. Guilt is not the psychological effects of being abused. Guilt is its own independent power. It is an autonomous power outside of you and me that reigns over you and me. Guilt is here. As Jesus says, it's already here. Do y'all remember the light bright? Does anybody still do light? I love light bright, man. I still play that game. I can still pop, pop. It's the only thing I can do in the fixer-upper category. I can make something on that light bright. All right, do you, I want you to think of it this way. Condemnation a comprehensive collapse, the reality, the independent dark power of condemnation, punishment, guilt, doom, dread, all those words, right? I want you to think of them, if you know the light bright game, I want you to think of it as the light bulb in the game behind the black paper, okay? And I want you to think of the different colored pegs that we put into that black pep paper to make something. That's your life. And those are all the aspects of your life. It's your relationships, it's your thinking, it's your, it's your feelings, it's your experiences, it's culture, it's education, it's all the isms, it's ideologies, it's education. I mean, it's every aspect of life are those pegs. We are not only lit up by condemnation. Boom. We are a conduit of condemnation in this world. The energy, the light behind the dark paper 
is condemnation, its own power. And we're the little peg, and we plug in, and it lights us up. And then you become a conduit of it into this world. This is why you can't silence the inner critic that you have right now. It lights you up. This is why you can't get rid of the stress in your life. It lights you up. This is why you can't get rid of anxiety in your life. It lights you up. It's its own independent, autonomous power that you can't control, that's bigger than you and beyond you. This is why you are the critic. You're the jerk toward others. You become a conduit of condemnation. Uh, this is why anger ruins marriages. This is why anger ruins parenting and ruins churches and ruins communities. This is why self-justification ruins places of education. It ruins ideological dialogue and debate. It's why self-justification ruins political sanity. And it ruins true cultural unity and diversity. And it's why it ruins true social justice and why it ruins the ability to disagree and still be friends because we're a conduit of condemnation. We're the little peg in the light bulb game. Ding. The bigger Babylon also means sin and the exile that it carries with it. That's the bigger Babylon. Just remember, because I use these images, sometimes you lose them and you're like, what does he mean by bigger Babylon? There it is. That's just the way I, my brain works. The bigger Babylon also means it's bigger than you. You can't deliver yourself from the bigger Babylon. It's bigger than you. You can't deliver your relationships from the bigger Babylon. It's bigger than you. You can't deliver the world from the bigger Babylon. It's bigger than all the ideological utopias that are out there today. You watch. Mark my words. They're already saying it. You listen for all the utopias that are going to come pouring into the world as a result of what's been going on in the world. This is going to save the world. This ideology will save the world. This redoing of history will save the world. This philosophy, psychology will save the world. You watch. In Luther's day, gout was a form of arthritis. And what it was was uric acid would crystallize and actually harden uh, in your joints. I mean, that's painful, right? Uh, he says, it says, it's not only, everybody knows, it's not only excruciating painful, but in that day it was incurable. No one knew a cure for it. Nobody could cure it. In fact, in that day, the more doctors tried to work on gout, the worse it got. Okay? So there was this scholar, so when a scholar and church leader who was this church leader named Erasmus was leading a holiness movement that was going to change the world, he was just leading this movement of bettering people, fixing people's lives. He was saying things like, you can fix your guilt, and you can fix yourself, and you can fix your relationship with God, and you can fix your relationships, and you can change the world. This is what this guy was saying, and, and Luther was actually made, was trying to make friends with them. They were actually friends, even though if you read it, you'd be like, holy cow, they're enemies. But Luther was actually being a good friend to him. And Luther says to him, amidst his holiness movement realities, this is what he says, this gouty foot laughs at your doctoring. 
Are you busy doctoring your guilt this morning? Are you busy doctoring your relationships? Are you busy doctoring your children? Are you busy doctoring the culture? Are you busy doctoring your students if you're a professor? Are you busy doctoring... Isaiah would say it this way. Are you trying to self-exodus? Have you noticed how you make things worse when you try to fix it? So how do you fix exile? I mean, seriously. It's a logical question, is it not? How... How do you fix exile? How do you fix yourself? How do you fix your relationships? How do you fix your kids? How do you fix your friends? How do you fix your school? How do you fix education? How do you fix politics? How do you fix cultures? Answer, you can't. Wow, Jeff, this is, a, this is getting to be a better Christmas message the more we sit and listen to this. Thank you. Should we go home and like, like, you know, open presents and sing Christmas carols? <laughs> you will never want me to do another Advent sermon, and that's my goal. <laughs> it's my goal right now. So you can't. I, we need that to sink deep into our bones. If you want to have a good Christmas, it needs to sink deep into your bones that you can't fix it. It needs to sink deep in your bones that the more you try to fix it, the worse you make it. It needs to sink deep into our bones. There, what needs to sink deep into our bones, there is no self-exodus. There's no such thing as a self-exodus. There's no self-doctoring. There's no such thing as self-doctoring. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look in the wilderness. Something's going on in the wilderness. I want you to look in the desert. Something's going on in the desert. I want you to look in the valley. Something's going on in the valley. I want you to look at the immovable mountains. Something's going on with the immovable mountains. I want you to look at the rough places because something's going on in the rough places. And I want you to look at the uneven ground because something's going on in the even, uneven ground. Do you see it? Someone is there. Someone is becoming the ultimate, comprehensive, condemned one. Someone's becoming the punished one. Someone's becoming the guilty one. Someone's becoming exile. Keep looking, y'all. Keep looking. He's the Exodus. Keep looking. He's walking out of the wilderness. And he's taking you with him. And now the Exodus speaks to you this morning. I mean, literally. 
he speaks to you this morning. Comfort, comfort, comfort to you. I speak tenderly to you. Your warfare is ended. The bigger Babylon is gone. Your punishment is paid. Your exile is extinguished. I give double my love, double my grace, double my inheritance, double the exodus for all your sins. For all your sins. Have you noticed how you make things worse when you try to fix it? And Jesus says, man, I'm the exodus. I'm the only one that ends your exile. Period. Merry Christmas.